welcome to Finding Me. We are so excited today to have author, musician, inventor, David Green as a guest with us. David, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. David and I have been chatting prior to this, this conversation, and David is in Israel. Which, which city of Israel again? I'm about a half hour outside of Jerusalem in a place called Ramat Beit Shemesh, which is actually known as a place where a lot of Americans have moved to. So, uh, you know, people ask me why my Hebrew isn't so good. I say I live in America still in Ramat Beit Shemesh. So. <laughs> I love that. You know, that's that's beautiful. And and David has an incredible story. I mean, first off, I'm in awe that we can be having this conversation, you know, face to face to face via computer here, computer screen across the world. And I'm like I said, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of technology and the blessings that God has given us to allow us to continue to learn and to grow and to have these opportunities with others. Friends, I just want to tell you a little bit more about David prior to getting into this conversation. David Green, uh, he has authored a book about you and pictures of your soul. He studied music composition and has been recording and composing for decades. He has worked for some of the most famous names in music and is an award-winning film producer. For a livelihood, he invents and patents technology to sell to other companies. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and, you know, just to let you know, David, I have uh, been awarded three patents myself. Oh, really? And, and so, you know, we have something in common there. So, you know, you know what it's like to wait a long time to get answers from, from the patent office. I, I do. I do. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that you've been a lot more successful with that <laughs> than I. Mine was more of a an invention to, you know, help help many who struggle through life. And it it uh, with having the ability to cook and to stay warm and to have this fuel that they needed. And it uh, it, it was great, and it helped a lot of people, but I may have lost money. <laughs> so well, on that. Welcome to the world of being an inventor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so David spent time in Hollywood, in the Hollywood music business as a songwriter, started at the young age of 16. So you have been in the business for many, many years. David then studied music composition at Indiana U in Bloomington. After a lot of questioning, David went to Israel to find himself and a more soulful expression of his music. David found both by learning an array of topics about spiritual growth. Years later, David received his biblical ordination. He wrote his first book a book about you, which helps people find their individuality and soul awareness. Everyone has a different personality and meaningful path to achieve greatness in this world. Meanwhile, David wrote an album called Journey to the Real You. The songs and lyrics are woven throughout his first book, 
with codes connecting the reader to the songs. This is fascinating, friends. I have spent some time on his website listening to his music. It's beautiful. And it takes you, it takes you on that journey. And, and I really appreciate that. So over 30 years of teaching, David addressed topics such as loneliness, self-esteem, inner awareness, making major life choices, how to find your soulmate, and more. He says a big part of knowing who you are is knowing what you are. By knowing that the soul is the most essential part of who you are, it will contribute to the journey to the real you. David has a wife, has eight children and 16 grandchildren and live, lives in Israel like we talked before. And welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> David, you know, there's so many things and, and that we can talk about and we are limited in time. But would you share with me and with our audience what happened when you were asked to accept an award? Okay. I'll give you the, the background of uh, where I was at li in life at the time was that I, I was 16 years old and I was, all I cared about uh, was to try to be successful in the music business. And I was running so fast to do so that I had some sort of illusion that by by 20, if I wasn't successful by then, I was over the hill. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, some people were at 40, some 50. Now I'm in my 60s and, I, and I'm not over the hill. So no, back not. then, 20 years seems to be like I got to get there before that zero goes after my my <laughs> my second digit. So uh, I um, I was just running so fast. And when you run so fast to be something or to achieve something, uh, it's easy to become disconnected from your real self. And that that was what I was going through. I really was like, it was like I was on the speeding train and it was going so fast I couldn't see out the window. Everything was too blurry. And I just kept going and going and striving to, to make it big. And uh, what happened was, fortunately, there was this artist, R&B artist that I, I connected to, and we recorded uh, an album but the songs sounded too, um, shall we say, uh, too sterile, like like mm -hmm. like Canada, which is where I was from, in Toronto. Everything's too everything's too clean, you know. You can't get soul music when you're every when the subways don't have graffiti on them, you know. So uh -huh. the the sound that we had was just just didn't have enough of that soul sound to it. So. We went out to LA and uh, we got in touch with this incredible producer arranger who had won numerous uh, Grammy awards for previous albums. And uh, we uh, started recording and wow, the sound was amazing. The, the, the arrangements were amazing. The musicians were amazing. And he was very intrigued by this 18 year old by the time I was there, that was 18. And uh, like, what's this 18 year old rubbing shoulders with all these you know, big players? And we became friends. And uh, he told me that he was nominated for a Grammy and he wanted me to accept the Grammy on his behalf because he was busy probably recording another Grammy Award album. And um, so I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, but I didn't know what I was 
getting myself into because um, there was a lot of anxiety that started to build around the idea of picturing myself in front of this whole big arena of people. So thousands of people in person and, you know, millions of people watching on television as I go up and accept the award. And I started to picture this, this, this guy going up there and saying, I want to thank you on behalf of, and just having a blank. Like I was just so scared of messing up that I would make a bigger fool of myself that it wasn't worth it to accept the award. So there I was in this limousine that he, he arranged for me to go in with my rented tuxedo down the highway. And I, I, you know, I come from a non-religious background, but I prayed to God at that moment, God, please make him lose. I don't want him to win because I do not want to be completely embarrassed by going up there and looking like a total fool. And God listened to me and he did not win that year. But uh, if you have a, if you were nominated for an award, then you're part of this big VIP event that takes place next to the hall. Um, and it was in a hotel where each ballroom had a different theme to it. Like Count Basie's orchestra was the jazz room. They had the disco room back then. And then there's a room that I went into, which was um, you know, televisions playing the Grammys and a big spread of food. And all these really, really top musicians all around that were very famous. Now, just as a, another piece of background, I come from more of a jazz, classical background in music. But I was trying to break into the pop market without sacrificing my artistic integrity. And that's a hard thing to do because people, the listeners, are dictating what is considered popular. And therefore... For me to not sound too poppy would be difficult. Yet there was like a, a musician there that was like, he was like my God. He was my idol. I was worshiping this kind of person who was the ultimate talent in jazz music, but had a really big hit on uh, in the pop market. And I couldn't believe he was there. And I looked at him and I had this moment of, like like this vision from God that said, whoa, he looks very depressed. What am I going to do? I'm running as fast as I can to be somebody who's very depressed. And I, I had this realization that I better run after being happy and then use my music as an expression of that happiness, of that inner awareness, of being who I am and not being who he is. And I felt, I just, I didn't know where to go with all this, but there was such a strong impression that that face had on my heart and on my soul that made me wake up and say, you know what? You've got to slow down. You've got to be an 18 year old. And what 18-year-olds do, I don't even know, but I have to be an 18-year-old because if I jump into a world that's too far ahead of myself, I'm not going to fit. I felt that I had to go through each stage of life. And I still believe in that very much. But at the time, I had that realization. And um, what I did, I decided to go to college because that's what 18-year-olds do. Right. 
and I studied music composition. And it was ironically, all the musicians there wanted to be like that musician I saw in LA. You know, they were all running after that. So I saw it was very superficial. And I started going through this soul searching process while I was there. And I found myself, you know, going to the synagogue they had um, in, in on campus. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I, you know, I wanted to observe something. But on the other hand, like, I've, you know, violated Yom Kippur services by by having someone drive me in a pickup truck to, to the services, you know, like, like, <laughs> why, why am I going there? But I'm violating it. And, and I was bothered by a, a guy playing cello on Yom Kippur, which is a violation of the very holiday that they're expressing. And I'm saying, you know, I don't want to go, I, I'm leaving this place. This they're, they're, you know, they're hypocrites and I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> you know, I realized that, you know, I have to resolve for myself where religion plays a role in my life. And I have to decide like, is, is, this, is, there, is there anything to this? And if there is something to it, I should take it seriously. And if there's nothing to do it, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be involved at all. Like, what's the point? Either it's true or it's not true. I didn't buy into these, uh, you know, uh, Kierkegaard's, uh, you know, kind of uh, existentialist of, uh, visions of things where everything is relative truth. I had this inner sense that there is something called absolute truth and I wanted to pursue it. And um, that's something that's in my genes. Uh, I come from a Hasidic dynasty called Kotsk, which is known for the love of, of authenticity. And I said, well, the best place to do that is where I know there's a good, like a community of people who really believe it. So let me go challenge them and uh, I can decide for myself as an adult, whether I want to embrace religion or whether I want to completely reject it because there's no point of pretending. And that makes a big difference in your life. You know, if, if uh, we, we the, the word for hello and goodbye in, in Hebrew is shalom, which sure. is peace, police, mm -hmm. peace, which is why do we say peace to somebody? It's not like I want to have peace with you. You're blessing them to have inner peace. And inner peace comes from the resolution of the different voices that are inside of you. And so I wanted to go through a process of creating inner peace by resolving my outlook in life. And so I went to what's called the yeshiva, which is a place of study of, of, of Jewish law and Jewish philosophy. And there I found myself with all these guys that were also going through the same questioning. So we bonded very closely. And, and one of my friends, he had done a a thesis of there is no God. That was his thesis in college because he wanted to come and rescue his twin brother from becoming religious. Who <laughs> He became religious before him. And uh, meanwhile, he was this guy who wrote that thesis was the first of our group to become religious because he was so prepared to, to reject them that every no argument got knocked down. And then he realized, well, I'm stuck, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that, that was the battle part of it. But then I started realizing that as I accepted more and more and became more in touch with my soul, that there was nothing better for my music than that. There was somebody singing. There was somebody inside that was singing out to God, was singing out from a real place. And my music became less artsy rather than being artsy and having to be different and show that I had come up with something unique. 
all I cared about was just expressing what my soul had to say. And I started a jazz band that performed every Saturday night there. And I started getting all these gigs playing piano on different albums and writing music for different projects. And it was like, like what better music school could there be than being in touch with your real life? And my dormitory was overlooking the Western Wall and the site of where the temple used to stand. I mean, there was nothing more inspirational for me than being involved in, in, in philosophy, spiritual awareness, and being in Israel in the holiest spot in the world. And uh, that, that I went through an incredible transformation, which I believe continues to grow every day um, you know, in, in the process. Wow. So that's the basic, that, that's the basic background. <laughs> you know, there are so many points of interest in that basic background. And the things that you listen to, really, you know, you are being led by God to be able to see, you know, your idol in this man, you know, in the music world, and look and recognize as an 18 year old looking at him and recognizing he's depressed. You know, what's, what's with this picture? I don't want to be like that. I mean, you could see where you were headed if you stayed on that path. Right. Right. And, and it was, it was, a. Uh, I only understand now what, what God was doing to me. I only understand it now. And I'm very thankful for that. And uh, th there's actually a, an idea that even though we don't have prophecy in the world now, that was lost at the time of the Second Temple. Um, but prophets used to look at us all the time, many prophets, there were thousands of prophets besides the ones we read about, that would look at a person and say, this is your personality and this is what you're meant to do in life. And we don't, we don't have them to tell us that, but the way they did it was by looking inside you and they could see it, which means that that message is there, even though I don't have the prophet to tell me it. So every so often we get a glimpse of it. And I believe at that moment when I saw that face that was depressed, that I got a glimpse of something inside of me and I didn't know, I didn't know how to interpret it uh, enough to know, you know what, what steps to take but it made such an imprint on my heart that I knew I had to do something. And then I figured out from there, you know, which way to go. But it was truly a blessing of, 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 of some type of insight. I don't like to say a prophetic insight, but it's an internal insight that, that God gave me. And for me, I would say a gift of the spirit. Okay. A gift of God. Right. To give you that insight. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's just how I relate to that. And I, I think it's similar, just different words right? In, in explanation there. But we all have that. Right. And I think, you know, as we, we come around in this conversation, it it's, takes that slowing down, you know, and to, to be at, to be taught and be willing to listen to what's inside us. Right. It, to our soul. You know, you talk about, you mentioned about having to go through each stage of life. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. And, yeah, and well, I, the, t 
the Talmud actually tells us what the the main attribute is of each decade of our lives, right? Oh, and e each each one has a certain type of growth that you're supposed to go through. Um, and and uh, there's I'm now when I turn sixty, it's there. There's this concept of chachma, which is a certain type of wisdom that mm -hmm. you acquire through that just becoming that age um so so every stage of life has that and and people have to be careful not to live in the past uh, in an era that they're no longer there and some people because life was so exciting in a certain stage of life they're still trying to hold on to that and it's they're not supposed to hold on to that they're supposed to see the beauty of the, where they're at in life at the time why do you think it's so hard for people to to move on, to move, to, to continue to grow, to change? Uh, th there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one reason is if a person is out of touch with themselves, so then they don't have the means to evaluate what they should do with their lives. Um, a, a person will follow what society is glamorizing as being the ultimate life. Hollywood films can be extremely dangerous because they portray life only as an exclusive right to people who are beautiful or people who have certain qualities that, that I don't ne necessarily even want, but they make it seem like your, your life is ultimately experienced during certain phases. Um, and if a person is out of touch with themselves and trying to live someone else's life, then it's very hard to be able to move forward because they don't even know who that is that's moving forward. They're just, they're, they're, they haven't gone through what I call the journey to the real you. They, they're, they're not, they're not in touch. Um, and therefore what's, what's guiding them is their emotions without enough of a, awareness of what that is. So if a person felt a high during a certain time of life, like I used to teach uh, in a girls' school, and I used to have uh, about 50 girls I taught, and uh, I was always joking and entertaining and finding them, uh, uh, you know, being a help, helping them and counseling them, and I, I had a, a high of being able to help so many people within a certain period of time, but but that's not me anymore, you know. And uh, it's not supposed to be me anymore. And um, it took a while to make that realization and surrender to the new phase of life that I'm in. Um, and so because uh, we're all striving to be happy, uh, sometimes we get confused with an emotional high and true happiness. So, so it's very hard for people to let go of what their previous emotional high is. Uh, and move on to the new one because they're scared to go into new territory. It's it's very hard to let go. I I think you're exactly right with that, and it's that fear that holds us back. And instead of of you know trusting God and surrendering, that that word to me is so different than, okay, you know, I'm just going to turn it all over 
and you know let you let you you know take me down this path but surrender is this willingness for me right you know, this this willingness to say okay god show me the way you right. know i'm ready to go down the, this this path this journey to the real me right surrendering is something which um is a beautiful thing to do when you know you're in the hands of God. Um, there's a there's a meditation that we practice that is um, climbs up the five levels of the soul. Um, it, it, most people only can do it uh, to the second level, um, but uh, just the, bef before getting into the five levels of the soul the first level of this meditation is uh it's it's somewhat like what mindfulness does where if you tune into your breathing breathing is a basic um um part of of life that is constant whether you're conscious of it or not so by tuning into it you're you're tuning into the most basic level of the soul which is the part of the soul that's connected to the body. The, in Mishle, which is the writings of, of King Solomon, it says that the um, candle of God is the soul of man. So the, the soul is connected to the body, which is a very hard thing to understand, which is what my, my, my second book is all about, is how the soul and the body work together. But it always wants to rise and reconnect to God. The soul is always going up like a flame, but yet it's connected to the wick of the candle and it's supposed to stay down in this world to achieve a, a spiritual life by elevating the physical world. So we, what we do in our meditation is we, we, we turn, tune into breathing and become aware of the body and that the soul, like the wick part of it is our blood. As it says in the Bible, a number of places, dumb who nefesh means the blood is in the, the soul, the nefesh level, which is the lowest level of a soul, is in the blood. And therefore, um, by tuning into the blood, which is flowing all around my body, I'm tuning into the lowest level of the soul. And that's a certain consciousness that if, if people would have, that would uplift so many people in uh, uh, their lives. But the second level of that, is where you move into what's called the Ruach level, which is the second level of the soul, which is connected to the heart. And um, that level of the soul is actually disconnected, almost like above the flame. It's in a place of infinity. It's in a place where if you let go, it can be very scary. It's, it, it's something where you completely surrender yourself into the hands of God. And that surrendering is a tremendous elevating experience. And what I call that is empty spaces. You have allowed yourself to go into this infinite empty space. That's actually the title of my second album is called Empty Spaces. And the, the, the title song for that is a meditation of what I just described. And it takes you up from the nefesh level of the soul to the ruach level, level of a soul. And so in life, we it parallels where so many times where people are fighting what, where God is taking them rather than surrendering 
and allowing themselves to go to where God wants them to go. And if they surrender, they'll be so much happier, but they get stuck on these old visions of what makes them happy. So surrendering is a, a beautiful thing that allows you to feel who you really are within God's hands. It's beautiful. That really, is, that really is beautiful. I actually, I want you to keep going. I, I'm okay. just, I'm taking notes here. And, and, and <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, another point that's connected to that is that the, the fifth letter of the alphabet, the, the Hebrew alphabet, is the letter hey. And the letter hey is actually shaped almost like a bent tube that has an opening on the upper side and on the bottom. And if you blow into that tube, or when we breathe, we have the sound of the hey letter, which is ha, hey, like, is a, like an H. Uh -huh. It makes the sound, I mean, the letter itself makes the sound, ha, ha, hey, is like breathing. And in the Bible, when it describes when God created us, it says that God breathed life into us. Mm -hmm. And that means he breathed using hey. And now the soul has five levels to it, which is hey, it's the, because it's the fifth letter of the alphabet. And therefore, he breathed through the sound of the hay, through the breath of God coming through that tube, so to speak, the five levels of the soul. So I described to you the nefesh, ruach, then there's what's called neshama, which resides within the brain, and there's something called chaya and yechida, which are above the person. They are sort of like floating above that person. And so we are created with those five levels. And a per when we pray, we're actually ascending up to those five levels to the highest level when we say what's called the Shemona Esrei, which is the silent prayer. When you see people praying at the Western Wall, for example, there's at one point after all these various Psalms, we say we, we eventually get to a place where we say the Shema prayer, which is recognizing God's unity. And then we go into a silent prayer where we're supposed to whisper it and only we are supposed to hear it because it's a private, very intimate time with God. And that's where we have climbed to the highest level of the soul in that prayer of 18 brachas blessings that we say, and we move up into climbing up in through those levels of the soul to experience that. And at the end, we step back and we're back into the physical realm again. <laughs> there's there is so much you know the visual when as you're explaining this and it makes sense you know as as you understand and and that uh, hey that breath and in the just the shape of the letter itself i mean i i, I just love this concept and this these things that you're teaching us and the meditations and, you know, another thought I'm, I'm having and whether it's meditation or prayer, you know, whatever you as listeners, you refer to it. Why do you think it's hard? It's hard for us as, as, 
as fallen man, you know, as, as just individuals here on earth, to be still enough to surrender through prayer, through our actions, through our thoughts to God. Well, um, the anatomy of the soul, um, actually it describes in my book that pictures of their soul, uh, which is based on a Kabbalistic masterpiece called the Tanya. And in the Tanya, it says that we actually have two souls. One soul is called the divine soul, which is what we've been talking about up till now. And one is called the animal soul. And an animal soul is, um, if you look at an animal, you know, like a dog, you look in the eyes of the dog, you could be fooled to think that they're, you know, a relative of man. Um, but the reason why we think that is because we're actually looking into the soul of the animal, but it's only an animal soul. And that animal soul is wants to live, it wants to eat, it wants to reproduce, uh, it has a temperament, it has all the various things that pull us away from the divine soul. And the, it describes in the Tanya that, um, that the body of man is considered like a city. And the, the divine soul and the animal soul are in a battle to try to conquer as much of the body as possible. So um, ne negative attributes such as anger and lust, which is uh, sexual drives out of context of holiness, um, um, you know, v various types of uh, selfishness, uh, what's called gaiva, which is translated as ego, all these things which the animal soul is driven by um, are, are there to pull us away from God. Now, why would God put all those negative drives within that animal soul within us? Doesn't he want us to come closer to him? Well, God did not want us to be angels. He didn't want to have robots that serve him. He wanted to have people who choose to serve him. And therefore, he created us with drives that pull us away from him. But those drives can be used in a very positive way as well. So, for example, if somebody is riding a horse, so that horse is a very good example of an animal with a lot of drives. And if a person is riding the horse and the horse gets away on him and it takes control, so then that person is, is being driven by the horse. If the person takes control, then that horse is an extremely useful tool to achieve all kinds of things. I can use that horse to go deliver money to a poor person, and I'll get there a lot faster because I have that horse to use as a vehicle to be able to do so. So the body is necessary for us to do all kinds of acts of kindness, uh, for me to pray, my lips are all tools of the body, my mind, everything that is in the body is a, is a tool for me to serve God. But if I didn't have the body, so I wouldn't, I would just be a, a, an angel and, the, and an angel is not considered on the level of man because man chooses to be on a higher level. But we have to have the vulnerability of falling 
if I don't have that vulnerability, then I not have I don't have the opportunity to choose to do good, and therefore we have to have drives that pull us away. But the idea of the various for in Judaism we have commandments that we do, and each one's connected. There's 613 commandments that correspond with the 613 limbs and bones in the body. Mm-hmm. So it's like each one is elevating another part of who we are to help lift ourselves to a higher level. And therefore, um, we look at the drives as being actually on our team. Because if I can take control of them, then I'm actually elevating myself to much higher level than an angel. There's actually a story in the Talmud of a king who hired a prostitute to try to, to seduce his son, the prince. Now, why would he do that? Because he wanted to test his ability to withstand the temptation. So now this prostitute is actually somebody being used for a good purpose. So the prostitute herself doesn't want him to fall. She's a, a messenger of the king. So she's just doing her job to try to seduce him. But yet, ultimately, she's doing it for his sake. So similarly, we have all kinds of drives that uh, that are there for us to learn how to get control over. And through that, we elevate ourselves to a much higher level. Fascinating. And, and I, I love how the explanation of choice, you know, it comes down to difficult choices. It comes down to being able to, within ourselves, gain that control over those passions and those things that that are not at that higher level so that we can then move forward in doing good and our actions reflecting that love for God. Right. But I I, I should warn you that um, there's a danger um, that takes place if we stop at this point here. And that is that let's say one day I fail and I fall to, quote, sin. I, 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 I do an action which is below my dignity. So it's very easy for people to therefore say, I'm a failure. I'll label myself as somebody who failed to elevate my body to use it for a good thing. And I drop myself and therefore I'm on a low level. And what happens is they don't understand that the divine soul is never hurt. The divine soul is holy and it's beautiful. And within every one of us is this incredible gold mine. And um, if, if I fall, so my job is to try to use that fall to learn to climb up again and, and recover from it. But every step along that way from falling is actual an, an incredible achievement. So for example, if I want to lift myself up, uh, I, I decide on a very small step to take because if I try too hard to get up to a higher point, I might fall and then blame myself even further and say, you see, you can't do it. But if I take a small step and I make that my step for today, then I have been 100% successful at achieving that step that day. 
And what's important for people to do is to set a realistic goal for their spiritual growth and take that single step. And then if they are able to get there, fantastic. If not, so the try the next day for the same step or even make the step lower so that they can achieve a 100% goal of that particular day and keep climbing and climbing. And there's this concept that somebody who has repented and lift himself back up is actually on a higher level than somebody who never sinned in the first place because the growth that they go through is coming closer to God. That work that they have put into lifting themselves up brings them even higher because they're working the body and the emotions and everything together to bring themselves up to a higher level. There's a, there's a technique that I, uh, I, 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 uh, I describe in a, a quick story of a guy um, who had a serious anger problem. And anger is one of the attributes of the animal soul. And uh, But what he decided to do is to get what's called an anger robe. And what is an anger robe? So this guy would sit at the table with his family and everything his kids did would get him upset. And he'd start yelling at his kids, yelling at his wife and losing control. And we all know what it feels like when we lose control and we say things we don't want to say. And even if there's a voice in the back said, why did I say that? And, and, and yet you say it anyway, right? Because you've lost control and anger has become the, 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 the one in, in charge. So what he does is he has an anger robe, but he has to get up from the table. He has to go up the stairs to the master bedroom. He has to take out the anger robe put it on, tie the belt, walk back downstairs, sit at the table, and then he can get as angry as he wants. But as you know, because he's allowed the time to pass and he's gotten out of the environment of where the anger was being generated, then he's calmed himself down and the blood from the, from the body is no longer rushing to his head. And, and as I said before, the animal soul is very connected to the blood. And and you can see when a person's angry that their face turns red because the blood is flowing up to the, the, the face. And when they take the time to allow that all to settle, then they return to back to hopefully who they are as a dignified person and can behave accordingly. And I appreciate that we continued that story because none of us, I mean, I, I, and I like the analogy with the anger rope. You know, we have these experiences in life that teach us if we allow them to. And, you know, I, I know that I have grown. I am at a higher level because of experiences that I've had that have challenged me. That maybe I let that animal in me you know, that anger came out and I didn't act, you know, dignified and like I would have hoped I would have in response to that situation. But I, you know, just like you explained, I know I did better the next day. Right. And, and that I, I have risen above. Yeah. And, and I think it, you know, it comes back to, the compassion for ourself in, in finding our real 
self and you know the real the real you and connecting with our soul that there is self-compassion there is this spiritual journey you know you talk about and you teach about spiritual self-defense you know and can you explain a little bit more about spiritual self-defense I know what I do to have spiritual self-defense, but I'd love to hear it from your viewpoint and how you teach that. Well, um, I, I, I'm trying to remember. There was an old movie called Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and the, the instructor used to tell the, the kid to wash the car. And he couldn't understand why he had to w wash the car to learn how to you know, learn how to do karate. But he was teaching him that there were all these exercises that you do. And by connecting all these modules of exercise, then you become equipped to have them all ready for you. So when you learn karate, you learn how to put your arm up as a defensive mechanism. You learn how to punch and step forward then you practice both of them together, one after the other, arm up, step forward, arm up, step forward. And then you learn to kick. And then you put all three together, arm up, step forward, kick. And uh, then there's a number of moves that you have. And when you get in a dark alley with someone who's trying to beat you up, right, you don't make this calculation of, well, I think, you know what, I should punch them in the face. <laughs> you don't have time to do that. But because you practiced your uh, self-defense modules before, it becomes like reflect, reflexive in your mind to be able to just have it there for you. I have a, a niece who was on the bus and there was a, a, a man behind her and he got, she got scared that he, he was trying to do something and she grabbed him and flipped him up and flipped him over his, her shoulder and threw him on the ground. Like <laughs> she had... <laughs> And, and she's a sweet little girl, but she had practiced doing that so many times that when she got this like fear, she did this to him. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, you know. But um, the idea is that in, in spiritually, we can do the same thing. People don't realize how strong they can become by, by learning uh, modules of self-development, then you have the ability to be able to withstand the, the various wars that you may come in front with. So I like, I like to use an example uh, where uh, somebody's on a diet and um, they have a doctor's appointment and uh, there's two ways they can get to the doctor. They can either walk a shorter route, but there's an ice cream store on that route, or they can take a longer route and there's no ice cream store, but they'll have to walk a little longer, which is not so bad if someone wants to lose weight. Right. So what happens uh, if they haven't developed that module of self-defense, they will allow themselves to walk the shorter route. And when they get close to that ice cream store, they just happen to need to use the bathroom. So where do they go to use the bathroom? In the ice cream store. And then you know, they walk out and they feel guilty 
you know, that they used the bathroom of the ice cream store without buying something. So as a moral responsibility, I have to buy an ice cream, right? So they have rationalized, which the animal soul is very, very capable of doing, uh, that they should buy the ice cream. Um, if somebody has developed the spiritual, spiritual self-defense, they say, you know what? I am not going to put myself in a position of being tempted because I understand my weakness. I have the humility to recognize that I am likely to fall if I go that route. They have to be strong enough to pass by the ice cream store eventually. But when they're first starting, for sure, the best route to take is the longer one where they're not going to be tempted. It's uh, I've worked with people who have addiction. And one guy who told me he, he, he was suffering from gambling addiction. And uh, he lived in London where there's areas where it's full of gambling. And he says, I can't go back there because I know I'll fall. And um, that, uh, that honesty is a form of self-defense. But we also can develop this self-defense when we become strong enough to actually walk by that ice cream store and learn that it's no longer part of my life, right? For me, there are certain laws of, uh, of what we eat in terms of being kosher that when I first became religious, it was very hard for me to give up on certain foods that I really liked. You know, a, a bacon uh, ch cheeseburger was like <laughs> a delight in my life, you know? So back then it was, oh my gosh, I'll become religious tomorrow. Right now I need my bacon cheeseburger. And uh, now I don't even consider it. It's not part of my life. I'm not in the realm of that. But I have new challenges. Like when I pray, do I have the proper intention? Do I, am I able to keep my mind focused on God? Thank God my challenges now are in higher spiritual areas, but they're still challenges because otherwise I wouldn't be human. So we elevate our challenges uh, as we move through life. So our spiritual self-defense is always moving with us into a higher realm, hopefully, and we develop our muscle of resistance from things we shouldn't do and hopefully develop our muscle of what we should be doing in a positive way as well. It's not just about refraining from negativity. It's also giving us the strength to do things that are holy and uplifting. Spiritual self-defense. It's it, you know, as you're talking about it and we're talking about challenges, I'm not going to forget, you know, that bacon cheeseburger analogy <laughs> or the ice cream store. And, and as, as you were sharing those things and I thought, you know what, that's exactly what happens. And, and I recognized in my own life, the things that challenged me before, you know, may have been here on this level, whereas now they're up here. They're different. And right. before I never thought about these things because I was worried about, you know, these were the things that challenged me. And and just these principles and these modules and these tools. And I really appreciate, you know, these things that you've taught us today. You know, friends, David, like we've, we've talked about, he has... He's a renowned teacher, and you can, I'm sure, as you've listened to this and as he's shared different uh, techniques and tools and how to, to, um, to find our real you. 
um, he is a masterful teacher and has a gold mine to offer. And we'd like to direct you to his, his website. It's realuproject.com. And R-E-A-L-Y-O-U-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com, realuproject.com. And there are some fascinating things there. You can get, um, order his books. You know, he's got music. He's, there's, a, there's a great personality test that um, will be enlightening for you. And, and David has been so kind to offer a 30% discount to our listeners. And the code will be finding. Finding is the code to receive that, to receive that discount. We will put the link to his website directly in our show notes if uh, you'd like to go there to do it. Um, just in closing, David, I just want to thank you. Thank My you pleasure. for being a part of the Finding Me Champions of Hope podcast. Now, if you've ever, as I think of Champions of Hope, you are, you know, you're the a great example of that a definition of what a champion of hope is. I appreciate that. And, and how you have taken on opportunities to learn, to, you know, to run after being happy and, and to, to take the time to, to search your soul and then paying it forward and offering this hope through others. And I just want to thank you for that and um, being a part you know, of, of this community. In, in closing, is there anything you would like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, one, one of the things that I find that uh, it interferes in spiritual growth and strangles so many people's life is low self-esteem. And if you look in the Bible, it says that God created man in his image. Now, how could there possibly be an image of God if God is infinite and intangible? So it means that we're actually created with the godly attributes that make us holy. And that soul within us is, is so holy and if somebody were to try to knock you down, and you, even if your animal soul is the one trying to knock you down, you should always remember that you're created in the image of God. And no matter what you do, what mistakes you've done, or what other people think of you, you must remember there's a pearl there. And you can always find that pearl and allow it to shine. And if people would do that, they would get along with themselves and they'd get along with other people much more because it says, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? The more you love yourself, the more you believe that you have what to offer others and the more you believe that others have a reason to love you. You accept the love from others. And therefore, those two principles being created in the image of God and love your neighbor as yourself should carry somebody through the most darkest times and lift yourself up 
and become a champion of hope. Thank you, Mr. David Green. My pleasure. Finding Me Champions of Hope podcast has been sponsored by the Finding Me app. Please join us again next week as we have another wonderful guest who inspires and motivates us on our journey as each of us become champions of hope. Thank you again. We'll see you next week.